my very great pleasure to introduce our retreat master for today, Father Anthony Wick. Father Hale. <laughs> Thank you for your optimism. I can make up this introduction. <laughs> I think what I would want to say above all is that he is so dedicated and completely immersed right now in the growth and fostering of spiritual life in the lives of the faithful and anyone who would be gifted enough, fortunate enough to go to the White House retreat. Father also offers his spiritual direction and is um, serving at the seminary. Father, is it in formation that you're working there? Yes, I teach a class on the Holy Trinity. Yeah. Oh, Father's teaching on the Holy Trinity. Yeah. So Father has um, a long, vast experience, and he hails from Oregon way back, not that long ago, but when, you know, when he was born in Oregon. But he's been around the world, uh, done a lot of studies abroad. So there's a whole richness of theology that he brings, but the beauty of what I recognize and have experienced already is that he comes with this deep love of Jesus Christ and a, a real yearning and longing to foster in you a greater awareness of all the things that God is doing. I, without a lengthy ado, I would like to introduce Father to you, and we welcome you, Father. Thank you. So can you hear, oh, can you hear me with this? Oh, it's not a mic? Oh, so I need to stay here all time. Or I could carry this with me at all times. Yeah. I can carry this around with me if I need to. Is that right? Oh. Sure. I can carry this around too in the meantime. Sure. Yeah. Let me up. She's got my back. Oh, is it working now? Like that? Or I'll just go with this. Yeah. I'll go with this if I need to. Like a rock star. All right. Well, it's a joy to be here with you all. Um, I look forward very much to seeing what the Lord's going to do today and ask that you come simply with open hearts. It's good that we started with a morning prayer to kind of open our hearts to enter into the spirit of the church, the actively receptive church, to discern where, do, where is the Lord leading me? What's going to... What is my future? What are his plans for me? And first, there needs to be this fundamental openness and awareness. I very much admire the program you're doing right now, the lay formation program. You're in your third year, right? That's pretty impressive. Hands for that. Yeah, absolutely. That is very impressive. So you're in your third year. We now focus in our third year on leadership, on leadership and the plans that the Lord is opening up for you. Uh, this could be a low point as far as uh, speakers, the quality of speakers you've had, but uh, there has to be some low somewhere along the way. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, no, I look forward very much to speaking with you on this topic of leadership. And I'd like to always undergird our thoughts on leadership in the gospel. I think that's important. To what is the kind of leader that Jesus wants of you? And what are the obstacles to that leadership? We have to reflect on both. What's keeping me from being the leader God is calling me to? What would that look like to really let go and to let God take over my life and lead me as leader? I know you're preparing for your time in your parishes to give back, to begin to enter into that dialogue with your pastors about where the Lord is leading you. So what a wonderful time to have this day of reflection as you enter this last year of your formation. I commend you for this, and I assure you that God has beautiful things in store for you. 
And I want you to have a confidence. Confides. I love etymology. You're going to get sick of that by the end of the day. But fides is faith. To have the faith of God. That God has already prepared some beautiful things for you. If you know Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That should be comforting to you, that the works as leader that you are to perform are already prepared for you. They're already set up. It's for you to walk in them. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to like come up with these works. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to be really original. No, you've got to listen. God's already set them up. You just have to walk in those works, already prepared for, for you from that time immemorial. Ephesians 2.10. Those works are already prepared. You just have to listen and find them. Be like, here's a cultural reference from how old I am, Pac-Man, huh? Going along, you know? Living within those works. Living within those works. That is your and my task. The works are prepared. Your and my attitude should be a docile attitude of, of Marian openness, an attitude of openness, or what we can call active receptivity. And I'll say more about that later. What is active receptivity? What is that balanced attitude of a leader? Let me give you the opposite of an example of active receptivity so we first know what it's not. This is the via negativa. We call that in theology. <laughs> Sometimes we get caught up in our own ways of thinking and we get frustrated when our own desires are not met. So there's a story of three priests golfing together, a Jesuit, a Benedictine, and a Franciscan. And they get behind this other threesome of golfers that's very slow. And they're like, what's going on here? And then people are backing up behind them. And finally, the marshal comes around on his cart and they pull him aside. And they're like, what's going on ahead of us? Why is this so slow? And he says, oh, it's the most amazing thing. We have three blind golfers in front of you today. And the Franciscan says, that is amazing. The poverty of not being able to see and yet still being able to play a sport like that. Huh? Always thinking on poverty and humility, huh? the Franciscans. The Benedictine says, wow, praising God in all ways, including golf, while I'm blind. That's, that's very impressive. The Jesuit is rather frustrated still. And he says, why don't they just go at night? <laughs> I'm a Jesuit, so... <laughs> That's the opposite of active receptivity. We get caught up in our own ways of thinking. We need to know our tendencies, our ways of thinking that might not be so healthy. Part of a leader is a lot of self-knowledge. For example, we often get hung up on our ways of seeing things. Sometimes you and I don't believe that a person can change or grow. We limit them and the possibilities that God can do within them. We sabotage the goodness of another. Maybe we don't mean to, but we kind of figure out that ah, there's no real hope for this guy, this gal. That's important. That can happen in marriage or in any other relationship. My spouse, or any person for that matter, actually has an infinite depth. Because they are made in the image of God and God is infinite, so I need to help them plumb that depth that they may not realize themselves. But it's not right and it's not human even to put them in a box of they'll never get out of this one. I know how they are, trust me. They have an infinite depth that we need to help them plumb. Otherwise, we sabotage that goodness in them and the good little seedlings God's planting. Another story. All my stories are true, by the way. So this man goes to a parish mission and he hears the priest really emphasizing the showing of love. You need to show your love to your spouse. Don't just say, love you, honey. And he's like, uh, guilty as charged. I don't do that enough. So he comes home that day and he resolves to change that. And he comes up behind his wife in the house, comes up and gives her this, behind her and gives her this big bear hug. And she begins crying. 
And he says, honey, what's wrong? And she said, it's, been, it's just been a terrible day. She said, Billy fell out of the high chair and hit his head. Mary knocked over my favorite lamp and broke it. And now you come home drunk. <laughs> we have an ability to sabotage even the goodness of others and the good things the Lord is planting in them. And that's not our role to sabotage or to cover, but to foster. What are the seedlings in others that they may not even recognize themselves? This has been three years of cultivating seedlings. 127 beautiful seedlings with lots of seedlings inside of them. Is that right? 127? Yeah. So we need to know our own tendencies. There are ways in which we can pretty much give up. And we need a new start, a fresh start. My parents, lovely parents I have, they had to get to know each other all over again once we nine kids flew the coop. I grew up on a, on a farm, so we needed nine kids. It's cheap labor. Okay. I'm sixth of nine. They had to get to know each other all over again. They loved each other mainly through the raising of us. They were on the same sheet of music when it came to raising us kids. You couldn't play one off of the other. But they didn't spend time for each other. They would never go out on dates when they were raising us. They loved each other through the raising of the kids. And that's how they were taught from their parents. So when we left, they had to start all over again. My dad, incidentally, grew up in Belfontaine Neighbors, tried religious life. Oh, yeah, got some waves for that one. Um, and tried religious life, and that didn't work out. Came back to St. Louis, went to a Jesuit he really trusted, and said, Father, where do you think the best place is to raise a family if a guy is not called to religious life? And this Jesuit said, definitely on a farm. <laughs> so my dad said, wow, well, I think I'll try that. So he left the city life and all that he knew. Grandpa was uh, vice president and treasurer of the May, uh, the May Company, uh, the department store. Left that life and left St. Louis uh, and began, went up to Montana and started working on a farm and finished his studies up there and met mom. So things come full circle. I wa always wanted to enter married life and then God gave me a curveball also, brought me into religious life, back to St. Louis as a Jesuit. So... Some things come full circle. I love my life growing up on a farm, though. Dad was very blessed in that decision, thinking first about his kids. Part of my heart is still on the seat of a tractor. <laughs> so anyway, my parents needed to get some professional help to work together and to get to know each other again. And they've given me permission to share this, so I'm not sharing with you anything that's private. They had to get some training in conflict resolution. They didn't realize that each one was closed-mindedly presuming that the other would always be this way. My mom will always be this way. Dad always will be this way. And they had the attitude that though they're wearing this wedding ring for life, huh, that we'll just have to put up with each other. We're, we're in this for life, but you just got a deal, you know? There are three rings in a marital relationship. You've got your engagement ring, your marriage ring, and suffering, you know. <laughs> suffering till death do us part. Not a very optimistic image of marriage, is it? Neither one was helping the other plumb into their depths. And so through this conflict resolution, they began to see that they each had something to offer, and each had a deeper side that they were never plumbing into. And so they began a new relationship together after some solid Catholic counseling, realizing that the other could change, realizing that each one could sabotage a little bit that relationship if they weren't careful. And so now my mom and dad are in a very healthy relationship. It's very symbiotic. They're often hand in hand. It's very cute uh, to see them together. Um, and as... Alan Jackson says, hand in hand, they'll go through life door, life's door, living on love. 
I hope you like Alan Jackson. I love country. Okay. <laughs> country boy. It took work. It took work. Uh, if we don't put in the work on my issues, the way that I think, the way I put people in boxes, I sabotage the goodness that the Lord wants to do in me. By the way, if you ever can't hear me, put your hand behind your ears. I recognize that sign. <laughs> or if I speak too quickly sometimes. Sometimes we always tend to see the problems as the other's problem. I don't know about, this isn't my problem, this is your problem. I don't need to go to counseling. You need to go to counseling. You know, I hear that a lot as a priest. That we're so sure that it's the other person's problem. Well, if we're so sure, we should be able to get a third party involved and prove to that third party that I'm right and she's wrong or he's wrong. We have to have at least that courage to get a third party involved. And sure enough, there will be things for both of us to work on, no doubt. We have to give a chance to the Lord to work, not give up. One more story about giving up. So this man is walking through the cemetery in Ireland, and he hears some wailing on the far corner of the cemetery, and he decides to get closer to see what's going on there. And, and there's a man kneeling, kneeling in front of this tombstone, and he's, he's crying, why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? And he's like, the guy is thinking, I wonder if I should try to comfort this guy. Well, I guess, why did he have to die? And he decides to come up, and, and so he comes up and touches him on the shoulder, and he said, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pull you out of your pain. Who, who, who is this man? That is this your father, your brother? Who is this man? And he turns to him and he says, It's my wife's first husband. I'll give you a couple of minutes to figure out that one. <laughs> Giving up, huh? Giving up on the goodness of the other. That's not where we want to go. Marriage has depth. Other relationships also have depth that you and I need to plumb. A good leader helps bring out the goodness in the other that may not be seen or may not be tapped into even. There's a strong temptation in all forms of ministry in the church. And that is, it's easy to make a caricature of people, to put them in boxes. This person will always be that way. The other person will always be this way. Praying for enemies. Praying for enemies. Heck no. Uh, there's no real hope for that person. They're unchangeable. <laughs> well, someone's unchangeable. Moi. Mm -hmm. I need to open up my view of the other to God's view. That's the only objective view. I start with my own self and my own sense of, oh, I'll never get beyond this, Father Anthony. Well, what does God think about that? My inability to get beyond something. How does God see your spouse? You should be regularly asking for that or whoever's close in your life, your child. All of these attitudes that I'm speaking of are inordinate attachments, disordered attachments. They give us a temporary or faux security but they keep us from relationship to God. We cling to these attachments for our security. In parts of the Far East and in parts of Africa, they catch monkeys in this way. They will, in the forest, they'll find a hollow tree. They'll bore a little hole in the tree, um, a little hole just big enough to, um, for the monkey to weasel his hand in there. And they'll put some peanuts inside of that tree or some kind of nuts. And the monkey will weasel his hand in there, grab the peanuts, and pull his hand out, but he can't because he has a fist now. And the monkey will pull and pull and pull, but he won't let go of the peanuts, not even to save his life. And the next day, the hunter can come, throw a net over him, and dispatch of him. The monkey will lose his life over those peanuts. That's amazing. It's a pathetic image of how attached one can be to what one wants and how one sees reality. My brothers and sisters, that's an image, a true image of what happens with monkeys. But I'm telling you, you and I have the same tendency. 
And my question for you is, what are your peanuts? What are things you cling to for earthly security, temporary security? Well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. <laughs> you know, at least, Father, I don't, I don't commit mortal sins like a lot of people around me. I, I feel at least a little better. I'm a little prideful. But I'm glad at least I'm not like so-and-so. Or like my neighbors who don't even go to church. At least I go to church. Ways that I see others that keep me from being truly free. The key of freedom is my ability to love. I'm only free insofar as I'm able to love you. Insofar as I'm selfish, I'm enslaved to my way of thinking, to my way of acting. I'm only free insofar as I'm able to serve you, wash your feet. That's the measure of my freedom. Another way of saying that, a man is only a man insofar as he's able to sacrifice himself. The best way to clip a man and to keep him from being manly is to engage him in selfish actions with internet or anyway, where he's thinking about himself and what he can get, not what he can give. Lust can't wait to get. Love can't wait to give. A man is a man insofar as he's able to sacrifice himself. Similarly with women, that ability to give of yourself, to bring out the best in others, to nurture goodness in others. What are my peanuts? What keeps me from being free to give myself as a gift? The first step of the spiritual life of which I'm speaking here is to know thyself. Know thyself. The Greeks got this three centuries before Christ over the temple of Delphi. It says, Gnothi seauton. Know thyself. If you don't know yourself and what your attachments are, what your tendencies are, you couldn't be a leader. Because these are these hidden things that keep boiling up in front of me. They keep me from being able to see you for who you are. I always see it through my lens. Perhaps a judgmental lens that I have trying to figure you out instead of looking into your eyes and seeing infinite depth as you are made in the image of God who is infinite. How do we overcome these inordinate attachments? Well, first we have to identify them, my tendencies, confess them, and then do what Ignatius calls agere contra, to act against. Agere, A-G-E-R-E, contra. Huh? To act against what those tendencies are and to do the opposite of what they're moving me towards. God's going to have to help me let go. But I need to ask. I need God's help to let go of those things I cling to for that temporary security. Therese of Lisieux, example. Therese of Lisieux, on her deathbed, the new doctor of the church, One of her Carmelite sisters pointed out to her a fault that she saw in Therese. True story. And Therese, her response was not, well, you have faults too, sister. You know, or, that's not a fault. You just misinterpreted what I meant. I, didn't, I wasn't impatient. Whatever her fault was, we don't know what it was. Instead, she said this. She said, oh, how happy I am to see myself imperfect even at the moment of my death. <laughs> Because see, Therese was in love with the Good Shepherd. And she knew that the Good Shepherd's greatest desire and the thing that he loved most was to rescue his sheep. And so when a sister pointed out a little hard part of her heart, she was like, oh, thank you for that. I didn't realize about that hard part of that little nubbin in my heart. And I'm going to invite Jesus, the Good Shepherd, to, to massage that and turn that back into a heart of flesh, that stony part that you pointed out. Thank you for that. That's the advice of a saint, huh? And that's how you and I can be also. Grateful to discover areas in my life where I'm not yet rescued by the Good Shepherd. Because he loves to rescue. That's our God. This is not about fixing yourself, getting rid by my own strength of my inordinate attachments. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get rid of my attachments. I'm going to become the greatest lover ever by my own strength, and I'm going to pray so much that, uh, no, no, it's not about me. It's about inviting God to win the victory in me. 
and letting him be the source of love by which I love others. That's putting your security in God and no longer in attachments, my way of seeing others, my way of seeing things. How do I fit in compared to others? So I ask God for help to let go of the things that I cling to. I do have a clinging tendency. We naturally have that. The whole thrust of our spiritual life is to let go of that clinging tendency and to get our hands open in a Marian way. Oh yeah, there she is. Huh? That's the Christian. You don't go to heaven unless you imitate that Christian. <laughs> With open hands, receiving everything as gift. Letting go of that clinging tendency, which is so natural for me. It gives me temporary security. That's why I do it. Little infants have this, you put your, put your finger right in the middle of their hand, what happened? And they have a pretty good hold. That's beautiful as far as relationship. But it's not so beautiful when you and I are still clinging in our adulthood to certain things of our life. And I'm not able to let go and receive and let God put on my hands whatever he wants to put and take off of my hands whatever he wants to take off. That's the Christian attitude. Not just a Catholic attitude, that's for all Christians. Mary models that perfectly. Where do we find our true security? Another source of attachment we need to be very careful of. Right now, in our politically fractured environment, we tend to identify ourselves more with a political party or a cable news channel than we do with the community of Christ. That's sad. Imagine if today were like a day where there's going to be a tumultuous or confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. Just imagine. Huh? <laughs> sure enough, there is. Huh? So in this fractured environment, out of a false sense of security, we point fingers at those on the other side of the river, so to speak. I can't believe that they should be so stupid to be on the other side. If only they knew which was the right side. No pun intended on the word right here. Yes, pun intended. But taking that river image, those people on the other side of the river, how dumb can they be? And the people, of course, on this side of the river, those people on this other side of the river, how dumb can they be? But then Jesus comes along and he's going upriver. And let's go with the Mississippi River image. Huh? Jesus is going upriver back to the source. And he invites us to follow him. Come and see. And if we stop yelling epithets or thinking epithets towards the others and begin following in the train of Jesus, as we're following into his train, what happens? We find ourselves closer and closer together as we're following in the train of Jesus back to the source of love, his Father. And that's the invitation. Jesus changes everything. He's going against the current of society, its condemnatory attitudes. And he has a spiritual attitude, if you will, that moves him productively upstream. He's not casting aspersions at people on one side of the river or the other side of the river. All spiritual people, all his disciples, have to learn how to move against that current of condemnation of you are of what party? You watch what cable news channel? He doesn't do that. He's focusing on the Father, getting back to the source. And when we follow him, we focus differently also. We move against the current. And that, that's the only way to survive. We're like little fish moving upstream. The great Catholic intellectual from England, G.K. Chesterton, has this to say on that point about spiritual life. He says, only a live fish can swim against the current. The dead go with it. Your choice. 
will you go with the current of society and choose one of those news channels and choose one of those parties as my fundamental identity and affiliation instead of the community of Christ? Now, I know you've chosen this path. You're in your third year of this path, so already you're following Christ. But I'm saying keep your eyes on the prize and don't be looking over at those knuckleheads that are coming closer. I don't know why they're coming closer. Don't be looking over there and who they are compared to me. Keep your eyes on the prize and you'll find yourself on the same sheet of music more and more with what really matters. Jesus is the way. He invites us into this path of discipleship, which is a path of finding ourselves through losing ourselves. In other words, we're focused on him and focused on the things he loves and his desires for us and his desires for his people. And little by little, we come closer to each other. Incidentally, and I'll say this kind of as a last point here on this Acrimonious battle between parties, I think, is probably the most effective ruse the evil spirit has to keep us from focusing on what's truly important, the following of Christ. As long as the evil spirit can get you and me looking at each other and casting aspersions are really frustrated or intentioned um, at each other, he can keep us from the following of Christ. He's doing that pretty well in our culture. And we have to make a choice, agere contra, not to focus on the others. I can't believe they would think this way. And to focus on Christ and to follow him upstream. Scripture puts us back on track, reminding us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, which parties in power, but against principalities and powers. We should be invoking the archangels and our guardian angels to help us in this battle. This is, a, this is a spiritual battle. It's against principalities and powers trying to destroy us and break us apart at the seams. You all are called to leadership, to follow Christ, and to point others toward Christ. That's what a leader does. You're going to lead others towards Christ. Keep them focused. Keep, help them keep their eyes on the prize by modeling that yourself. What really matters? Being careful with the things that just cause me agitation and anger and no hope for this situation that's so bad. Where do you put your hope? Put it in Christ. Leadership implies discipleship. I have to be a disciple, a follower, before I can be a leader. If I'm not a good listener, I'll never be a good leader. That's true in the business world. There's no business in the world where the best executives are not excellent listeners to the people who work in the company. You could give me hundreds of examples, but the best companies, the most effective companies, are where the executives or those in leadership are great listeners to what's really going, de- going on on the floor. Hmm? Similarly, in the spiritual life, there's no good confessor as a priest if he's not a good confessee going to confession himself. There's no good spiritual director if you're not a spiritual directee. Okay? There's no good leadership without being a good disciple. There's no good mother who's not first a good daughter in front of God. There's no good father who's not first and foremost a good son of God. You see, our sonship and our daughtership is our fundamental identity. And you should never confuse that fact. Be careful here. You are not first and foremost a husband or wife or father, or mother. That's not your fundamental identity. You are a daughter or a son of God. First and foremost, you are a child of God. Everyone's a child of God. Our society is trying to tell us, no, 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 it's your identity or your gender that, that makes your fundamental identity. No, you're a child of God. 
And when I lived my childhood, I'm not first and foremost a priest. I love being a priest, but I'm not first and foremost a priest. I'm not first and foremost a religious. Actually, my religious identity undergirds my priestly one. But that's not my deepest identity either. I am a son called to follow Jesus. I have a friend in Houston who said, who's not Catholic, and was like, what would you be without that color? You know, let's say the church fell apart or whatever, went underground or something. What would you be without being a priest? And she meant that really, and I, so I was like, well, let's see if I can, well, I know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but anyway, let's go with your, and I thought to myself, and I said, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I am. That's my fundamental identity. When you and I tap into that fundamental identity as a son or daughter of God, we bring a lot more to our relationships with our spouse, with those we're called to minister to as leaders, because we're tapped into that fundamental identity. Don't get that mixed up, that I'm first and foremost a mother or father or husband or wife. Your parishes see you as potential leaders. What does that mean? It means that your parish sees you as someone who can be a very good listener, a good disciple, who can point others to Christ as any good leader would, point beyond herself or himself to Christ. Let me give you an example. I'll keep an eye on the time here. Let me give you an example of how not to be a good leader using scripture. doing well. I'd like to do with you a meditation on the case of the unconverted Peter. Uh, St. John Paul II, in dialogue with the Orthodox of the East, they said to him, they said, uh, but you are a successor of Peter, and Peter was a pretty messy guy, and he put his foot in his mouth all the time, and he denied Christ three times, and John Paul II said, no. He said, I am a successor of the converted Peter. And Peter, after Pentecost, is a different man. <laughs> Whoa! Does he take a lead? And even the shadow, as he walks by, if he catches shadow, heal. <laughs> Peter's such a different man when he receives the grace of the Holy Spirit. So this is before Pentecost, still the unconverted Peter. Chapter 21, it's on your green sheet. Last chapter of the Gospel of John. Perhaps added on at the end. And first I'd like to say a word about obedience and the etymology of the word obedience. It comes from the Latin word audire. Ob audire. Obedience. Audire is to listen. Obedience is about listening. You have to be a good listener before you can be a good leader. A person who's going to lead or give orders or command must be a good listener. In this case, Peter wasn't. So Jesus, we know, had appeared to his disciples in the previous chapter and told them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. They are to begin their ministry now. But Peter goes back to old ways of doing things. He's tired of waiting on the Lord to lead him. And so, on, in verse 3, Simon Peter says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm tired of waiting. I don't get this Jesus resurrected thing and what we're supposed to do. I'm going back to my old way of life. It's a very sad proposal. But he's got the natural gifts as a leader. And so the others say, we will come with you. <laughs> We're coming. So they all get into the boat, led by Peter, who's not listening. And they go out all night fishing, which was common at the time. And they catch absolutely nothing. It's a good thing in your and my life when we catch nothing. 
It's a sign we're barking up the wrong tree. They catch nothing, even though they're professional fishermen. Dawn comes, dawn, a sign of hope. Verse 4. Jesus is standing there on the shore. The disciples do not realize it was Jesus. Jesus is there. He's probably been there all night. And Jesus has had to direct the fish all night. That's my imagination. He's like, here they come. Go, go, go. Get away. Because <laughs> these are professionals. They're going to catch some fish. They know where they are. They know where the shoals of fish are. So all night long, he's having to scurry them away. So they don't get anything. Dawn comes. He calls across the water. Water is a wonderful sound conductor. Children, have you caught anything to eat? Children, no. Who's this guy calling us children? We've been sweating it up all night. Then the word of hope. Even though they're living in disobedience, Jesus has been waiting for them to instill a word of hope. Cast the net over the right side of the boat and you will find something. What? If you are on the Sea of Galilee, which is 14 miles long, and you're in this little boat and you're cast netting, whether you throw the boat off the right side or the left side makes absolutely no difference according to which fish are underneath you. But he asks for an act of obedience. Cast your net off to the other side and you will find something even though you haven't caught anything all night long and you just threw your nets off the left side of the boat. Try the other side of the boat about three feet away. And thank God someone in that boat said, what do we have to lose? Let's do it. Let's do it. And so... So they cast it and they were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So as soon as they cast it, Jesus has to say to the fish, now, hurry! (laughs) 153 large ones, huh? All cram in, I imagine. In one of my retreats, I was imagining myself as a fish, and we were saying to each other, how are we all going to fit in here? In fish voice. (laughs) How are we all going to fit in this net? And so we're all like looking up, you know, letting ourselves be taken. 153 large fish, so much that the net's about to bust. And they wisely don't try to pull the net all the way up because it would bust. They're going to drag it with the fish squirming inside of it all the way to the shore. John, the one closest to obedience, the one who had his head on the heart of Jesus, says, it is the Lord. He recognizes who this must be. Here's the voice, sees the miracle through obedience. It's the Lord. Peter trusts John. He's like, oh, really? <laughs> and he's only wearing his breeches. So he throws on his clothes and he throws himself out into the water. And he begins flailing like mad to get to Jesus. Last time he saw Jesus, he was trying to look good in front of the girls. This time he's willing to make a fool of himself. Why is he so desperate to get to Jesus? Because he wants to tell Jesus he's sorry for denying him three times. And he's got to hurry up and get there before he disappears. And so he's flailing for all he's worth, jumping out of the boat to get to Jesus. And he makes it. And Jesus waits for the others to come. And Peter becomes a leader again. Jesus sends him to go pull in the 153 fish. He gives him like a superhuman strength to do that, single-handedly. And he pulls those fish in. Jesus, of course, already living in obedience. He's got the fire going. He's got the fish on the fire. He's got the, the, the bread going. He's like, hey, y'all hungry? You want something to eat? He knows men. <laughs> the way to a man's heart, huh? Through the stomach. And so they eat. And no one dares ask if it's Jesus. They all know who he is. The charcoal fire. Bring some of the fish you just caught. Well done, gentlemen. (laughs) Well done, gentlemen. And ladies, if you are the disciples also. 
well done for following in obedience what I was asking you to do. And that's why you're blessed. And I'm proud of you for listening to me and throwing the net off the other side. I'm amazed how much God still works with us when I'm living in disobedience. He's still trying to wait for me to come to my senses and to give me that little invite to throw my nets off the other side. Why do I keep barking up the wrong tree, insisting on this particular way of doing things? Jesus says, come have breakfast. They realize who it is. Peter now has his opportunity. We go till five after, right? Am I correct? Yeah. Uh, Peter has his opportunity to redeem himself. And Jesus invites that opportunity for confession. A true leader knows how to confess and admit fault. That's a great opportunity for our church today. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, that's a tough question. When you've got John, the beloved disciple, next to you, and Jesus is like, can you appropriate his love also as head of the church? He's already been, he said, I'm going to make you the rock of the church, Petros. He gave him a new name. You're no longer Simon, I'm going to call you Peter, the rock. Can you appropriate even his love and lead him? Do you love me more than these? And Jesus' word in the original Greek is agape. Peter, do you love me with agape, sacrificial love? Would you give your life for me? And Peter's answer here, we don't get the... English doesn't translate it so well, but anyway. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The literal word is philia. He says, yes, Lord, I love you with a philia, friendship love. Jesus asks for agape. Peter responds with philia. And so, feed my lambs. I do want you in charge. I want you to look out for others. And I get that you don't have agape love. Then later, Jesus asks the same question. Peter, do you love me with an agape, sacrificial, total self-gift love? Will you be that kind of leader? Do you see that in yourself? And Peter says, I love you with the philia, friendship, love. You're a really good friend. i got to be honest. And the third time Jesus asks him, Peter, he lowers the bar and he says, Peter, do you love me with the philia, friendship, love? And Peter is hurt because the Lord had to lower the bar for him. And he says, yes, Lord, I love you with the philia, friendship, love. That's where we're at. i got to be honest. I'm not going to vaunt myself anymore as being this great sacrificial lover. i got to be real with you. This is confession after all. Look what the Lord does now that he's honest. Verse 18. Amen, amen, I say to you, Peter. When you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this, signifying what kind of death he would, by what kind of death he would glorify God. He's telling Peter, I'm going to give you agape love. You don't have agape love in yourself. I get that. I'm going to give it to you. You've never had it. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. And I'm telling you what, Peter, I prepared some beautiful works for you. For you to walk in. And you're going to live them so well that you're going to, even at the end of your life, be able to glorify me and totally give yourself and be crucified like I'm going to be. Upside down, traditionally, we say because he felt he wasn't worthy to be just like Jesus. I'm going to give you agape love, sacrificial love, and you're going to live it even physically and show people how much you love me. And so he gives his life for Christ. Peter. Both he and Paul. Paul carries a sword. Why? Because he also sheds his blood in Rome. Peter and Paul both died in Rome. Both shed their blood for Christ in Rome. Hence the beginning 
of Christianity now based in Rome. God gives Peter agape love. And that is an experience of receiving, Marian receptivity. And so Jesus says, follow me. Just keep your eyes on the prize, Peter. I want you to follow me from now on, and I'll keep giving you agape love. But Peter, we're not yet at Pentecost, remember? <laughs> Peter turns and saw the disciple following whom Jesus loved. He sees John behind him, and he's like, uh, Master, who... Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, what if I want him to remain until I come? What concern is it of yours? You follow me. Jesus says, don't worry about him. I've got him. You keep your eyes on the prize. Don't get caught up in other people's stuff. You keep your eyes on the prize. Follow me. I'm going to keep giving you agape love. You'll know what to do. Don't worry about John. I've got my own plans for John. Don't get caught up in other people's stuff. Peter is learning how to be a leader, which is to be a follower, which is to be a listener, a listener to John, a listener to Jesus, attesting his love for Jesus, being honest when he doesn't have, he doesn't feel a God by love in himself. And then Peter becomes Marian and he receives agape love. Jesus promises, I will give you agape love and you're going to live it. Qualities of a leader. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so I think we're on break now until...